Amen. Please be seated. And turn in your Bibles to Acts 14. That's about 922 in your pew Bible. You'll notice, and maybe you're thinking, there's a lot of verses on that insert. Well, there are more that I'm going to read than just on the insert. I just couldn't fit them all. So we will read all of Acts 14. It's such an exciting passage, as are many of these chapters. You know we are in the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark to begin with. They left from, if you think of your modern map of Israel, just north of Israel and Syria, that's where Antioch, that strong church that Barnabas and Paul, at the time it was Saul, um, helped to establish and build up by teaching there for over a year. Uh, They were sent by that church as missionaries across the Mediterranean to the west to Cyprus. They preached in several cities there, Paphos being the most uh, well-known of those cities. Then they headed north across the Mediterranean again. And this is not on a cruise ship. This would be like on a 40-foot wooden boat um, that uh, felt every wave. And they went uh, north and entered Galatia. That's a region um, in Asia Minor called Galatia. The Galatian letter was written to these churches in that area, and they started visiting those churches, Antioch of Pisidia, that's the first one, or Pisidian Antioch, the second city with the same name, uh, and they preach there. And every place they preach, people receive Christ, they are converted to Christ, and um, the church is established, but then opposition rises almost immediately. Uh, we get this constant uh, rhythm of the gospel conversion and opposition, and they move to the next place, preach again, it happens again. And eventually, they wrap back around to go back to their sending church, and the passage we have before us completes their first missionary journey. Um, With these traumas that happen when they bring the gospel, uh, we see churches that stood for centuries after that. Despite the hardship uh, that saw their planting, they existed for centuries. They established very strong churches, so it would do us well to see a couple things. First, this is just the story of God's redemption history in action as he grows his church. That's the big level we all get from that, and we praise God for what he does sovereignly to grow his church, to establish it and grow it. Uh, But also, there are some practices and principles that you see here exemplified and then bolstered by the letters Paul writes that help us today, how the church should function today, how we should carry out the mission that God has given us for the establishing of strong churches. If they could be established in those times under extreme duress, they could be established in our day similarly. Here now as I read God's word, this is Acts 14, starting at verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the city and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the city, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please give us understanding and insight about what we have read and what we will be studying. Please deepen our love for Christ and his careful shepherding of his church, which is on display in this passage. I pray that you will impress us as a local congregation with the timeless practices and principles on display in this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. We thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Acts bears witness to the establishment of some very strong churches, churches that lasted for centuries, as I mentioned. Most of these towns were in the area of Galatia. The first letter that Paul wrote was probably Galatians, uh, speaking to a group of churches that came from this missionary journey, most likely. Now, let us walk through a bit and extract at least five timeless practices and principles that inform us Christians today in the church. Um, we all desire to see his church be strengthened locally and abroad. We want to know what things we ought to do, what we should be pursuing, how we should view matters. So we go to the scripture and we see it lived out. And then we see these same principles that are noted there on the insert, all bolstered by other statements that Paul makes and the other apostles make in the New Testament. First, let's see what happens every time they preach the gospel. 
That's the first thing we notice starting at verse 1. Faithful gospel witness given by Paul and Barnabas, it certainly bears fruit, but it also certainly brings opposition. Verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered through, entered together into the Jewish synagogue, their common practice, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now in this case, Luke doesn't give us the content of the sermons they were preaching, but we know what Paul normally did when he went to the synagogue. He laid out the Old Testament back, background for Christ, and then he presented Christ. There were loose ends, and he tied them up with Christ. That was his common message that he brought. We could assume something similar happened here. Spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. So when the gospel is clearly declared, people come to Christ. People recognize it as the truth. The Holy Spirit enlivens them, and they have faith in Jesus. But something else happens when the true gospel is preached, and we see it in verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So there were some who didn't like the message of the gospel that they were bringing, and they fought against it and tried to turn people away from it. So what do they do? They contend with this. Verse 3, they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. In this statement, word of his grace, is always tied to his giving of Christ. Grace is that undeserved favor he gives to those who really deserve wrath, us. So he's speaking the word of grace. He's preaching Christ, boldly contending. But verse 4, opposition. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, that means they're trying to kill them. So they recognize this and they move to the next place. When the gospel's preached, you can be sure that there will be fruit. People will come to Christ. They'll come to realize Jesus is their Savior. But there will also be sometimes harsh opposition to this message being preached. They learned of it, verse 6, and fled to Lystra and Derbe in the cities of Lyconia. Now, they didn't go to these places just to get away and rest for a little bit. Verse 7, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Uh, everywhere they go, they bring the gospel message, people come to Christ, and then opposition rises. But in all these places, the church is established. Even through its persecutions and its oppressions and the acts of maliciousness against Christians, the church gets firmly established in these places. Later in the text, you'll recognize when they go to Lystra and they're preaching there for a while, these same people who are opposing, verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the last two places they were at. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him away. We'll come to that in a moment. That's no little statement. Uh, that means they thought they killed him. We'll come back to that. But for now and before we move to the next principle I'd like you to gather, recognize that we should expect opposition when we preach the message of the gospel. When the church is faithful to lay out Christ for who he is, the only Savior, we are necessarily saying to everybody, you need a Savior. Think about this. Now, I know if you're sitting here, you're probably friendly to this idea. You came in even probably wanting to be bolstered in the gospel. You know you're a sinner, and you know the only salvation for that sin is Christ. And that you come here regularly because you expect that. You should. That's the gospel message. It's always true. Uh, we are sinners who are in desperate need of salvation. We do not commend ourselves to God. There's nothing about who I am that commends myself to God. I must have Christ. And so give me that message. Give me that good news. That's good news because of the bad news, which is sin. Here's the thing. When you preach that message, 
people will, as many as were appointed, remember last week's passage, they'll recognize it and they'll long for more of it. But those who don't want to be told they're sinners don't want to hear that. And they don't want you telling them they are. And they want to say that, hey, how I feel or how I am, that's just how I am. And so don't tell me that God's upset with me. In fact, God's okay with who I am. He made me this way, whatever it may be. And if you say sin is sin, you are in the crosshairs. And so necessarily, they're preaching the gospel, saying, we're sinners in need of salvation. Half the people are like, yes, that's what I need. The other are saying, don't tell me I'm a sinner, and don't make me feel guilty about it. I don't like this. Get out of here. And if you don't be quiet, I'll make you be quiet. And that's what happens. You say, oh, it doesn't happen. It happens all over. All over. More and more, even in our own country. Less and less is it tolerated to say that sin is sin. And so, our example couldn't be more clear we preach anyways. Um, now, it doesn't mean be stupid and run into death, but it means move on and preach the next place if you can. But we'll see Paul shows both of those. Something else that I want us to notice in the passage, starting in verse 8. It's a tendency we have as human beings. There's a couple lessons that flow from what happens starting in verse 8. But I want to challenge us with um, this model, uh, or what happens as a warning to guard against what the crowds do when they hear Paul and Barnabas, or when they see Paul and Barnabas do what they do and then say what they say. We have to guard against glorifying, in this case, case these gifted preachers and teachers. Now, there's something else for us that we'll see again in Paul's preaching. When he's not talking to Jewish people, now he's talking to the people at Lystra. These are people with no background knowledge in Judaism as such. This is a, these are two backwater towns in, old, in, in, in the first century. Um, They would be like old country road stops on the way. And you have Lystra and Derby, and they they don't have a a religious background. So he comes at them with God's common kindness to every human being. Even people who aren't believers experience the rain, the crops that come from the rain, um, the good things that God gives us that we exist on that make us glad. He appeals to this to then point them to Christ. But he never gets explicitly to Christ, at least not in this portion of the sermon that we can tell because of what happens. Look at the passage. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. So maybe there the gospel's clearly preached. You can imagine Paul's not um, shy about this. Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, meaning he must trust in the true and living God, we assume through Christ. This is what he's, Paul preaches. He said, in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang and began walking. Everybody saw this sign that was done a gift that God gave to the apostles, especially in this period, to authenticate their credibility. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, in Lyconian. Now, that would have been a language that Paul and Barnabas would not know. Saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, who's the the son of Zeus in Greek mythology, because he was the chief speaker. Now, this is crazy. I mean, this is a crazy scene that's unleashing now. They're starting to worship these two as as deities. Now, there is a background that helps us understand the craziness a little. There was a first, there was a long-standing myth by the poet Ovid. He taught that Zeus and Hermes once visited a city disguised as people, tried to get housing, and nobody would let them in. Finally, an older couple let them in and gave them hospitality. So in return, they placed the older couple on the top of the mountain overlooking everything else, and they flooded everybody else. That's, that's Zeus. That's, the, that's a man-made God's thinking because it's just like man. 
Uh, and so you could understand that they see this signs and wonders duo, and they're nervous this could be the same thing. Back to verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Remember, not the same language, so Paul and Barnabas are like, what's going on here? This is a little weird. Verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, because they had a temple there to Zeus, a pagan temple, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought an oxen and garlands laying all over it to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. This is so like human beings, to elevate other human beings, to deify them in some way, to make them so much different than the rest of us so we could aspire to something. That's so low, but that's what we do as people. We take other people and elevate them because we want to feel higher somehow. It's a common trait among fallen mankind, and we Christians can do this just the same way as anybody else. John Calvin commenting on this said, This history does abundantly testify how ready and bent men are unto vanity the people who receive it. But this vice is too common everywhere, and it is to be bred in us. It is so bred in us to be perverse and wrong interpreters of the works of God. We see something, we don't give God the praise, we give people the praise. What a warning to us, and it's something we can certainly uh, see clearly and guard against. And thankfully, the answer that Paul and Barnabas give is a good one. Verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, which is a statement of protest, against blasphemy. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? Don't do this. We are also men of like nature with you. And here's the sermon. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying all that, even saying all that, says in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. People want to elevate other people. It somehow makes them feel better themselves following those people. It is just something, it's so identifiable, we all know it's true. We see it in the wider world, people elevating people, celebrities. Often we elevate them, but then we crush them as soon as we have the opportunity. That's just the way of culture, the way of mankind even, it seems. There's a warning for us here for sure. In this post-fall sinful tendency that we have, to exalt people over God, we have to be warned for sure. On the one hand, there is this sinful desire for me as a person to want your praise. Then there's this sinful desire, on the other hand, to unrighteously exalt a leader that you can get behind. The weakness in spiritual leaders or leaders in general and the weakness that followers have, they conspire together to rob a bit of God's glory, which he'll never let stand for long. It never works out well. The spiritual leader might say, look at me. How gifted I am. All you came to hear me. You're all here because of me. Now, they don't say it out loud, but something like that goes in our minds, sinfully so. And then people might say, I like to be part of that church or that organization or that group because they're winners. They're winners because he's a winner, she's a winner, and it's all about our glory. No one says any of this out loud, but you could see it happening. And you could see it crumbling too, but now you're caught in it. Kent Hughes, who is a retired pastor, a man of great wisdom, wrote this. We find it easy to exalt the messenger instead of the message. We want to make men and women rather than God our sense of security. 
So we have our own Christian pantheon, our own Christian matinee idols. We must, with God's help, honestly examine our hearts to see whom we are truly worshiping. Much more could be said about this epidemic of celebrity in the church and among uh, Christian leaders. But suffice to say, we have a great example here from Paul and Barnabas what to do. Men, women, brothers, why are we doing this? We've got to stop doing this. You know, what makes me cringe the most is when a pastor's name is on the, on, on the sign at the church. That's just so cringy. I mean, who cares who the pastor of the church is? Praise God that there is a church with God's redeemed, that God's appointed, hopefully, hopefully a multitude of leaders to teach and nurture that congregation. And when they're dead and gone, let them be forgotten and let the gospel keep going forward. At any rate, this picture, this extreme picture, gives us some caution. But there's more. There's a key observation that I want you to, to notice, a timeless principle, if, it, if you will, um, for Christian missions, church planting, the church in general, revealed in this passage. Very simply, persistence against the opposition is absolutely needed. It will be part of our calling. Uh, different parts of the world is way worse but every Christian at some point will have to persist against such opposition. Look how it's exemplified here, verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, which you don't stone people just to punish them, you do it to kill them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. but notice they persist. Verse 7, there they continue to preach the gospel. Now, Hughes, who I just quoted, said something else about their decision to move on from that place. Um, They didn't have to get killed. Sometimes the Lord calls us to that. But Hughes says, Paul and Barnabas were brave but not foolish. They were born again, not born yesterday. The Lord protects his children, but he wants us to use common sense. So the missionaries departed that time. Then they go to Lystra, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So they had built up some, some malice at this point. Having persuaded the crowds, don't pass over this. They stoned Paul. They stoned him. If that, past tense means they had to believe they did the job, that he was dead. In fact, it says they dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. He looked so bad off, so misfigured, that they thought him to be dead. The passage doesn't say his heart stopped, but everybody thought the same thing. The job was done. And there's nothing more vicious and malicious than stoning because it involves a group of people. Every individual takes part in the maliciousness of it. It's not just giving it to the Romans to crucify someone. They're participating, and they're throwing these rocks until a fatal blow is hit. You don't know which blow did it, so everybody takes collective guilt or glee, whatever it may be, however they view it, and they pummel this man with rocks and drag him out. Later, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said something at the end of the letter that has taken on new significance to me studying Acts. In the end of the book of Galatians, the very last sentence, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Some scholars think Paul was dead and miraculously healed. Look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, here's some persistence, brothers and sisters, he rose up and he entered the city. He went back. Now they had to see him that time and say, whoa, when they saw him come back, what he must have looked like. Then say that his wounds got healed. He rose up and entered the city. And then on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. This is persistence, to say the least. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, it continues. But talk about persistence. Here's the kicker, though. Look at verse 21. 
when they had preached the gospel to that city, now they went, went on to Derby and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They went back to all the places they got run out of. What do they do? Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue in the faith, telling them that through tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. Later, Paul wrote to the Corinthians something that maybe starts to sum total all of what he had been through. He said, we have this treasure, the gospel, Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay, talking about ourselves, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted at every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body, the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Brothers and sisters, we we have to hear this, because as we sit here, thousands of Nigerian Christians have been slaughtered. And we are in total comfort. We're going to go eat lunch after this. We're going to celebrate. And God has given us this grace. We praise him for this. I'm not asking for persecution, but I'm saying we should not leave here comfortable with what's happening to Christians in the world. But recognize God has not forgotten them. They are standing in opposition against enemies of God with the gospel, and they're dying with it. And they are bearing the death of Christ in their own death so that people look at it and say, if this thing makes them stand so strong, it must be true. Because anyone else would bail out on it if it wasn't real. But they don't bail out on it, and they go to death for it because they know it's true and their eternal security is made plain. This is how the Lord works often. We are spared at this moment, but don't think we'll always be spared. They passed through Poseidia, verse 24. And when they had spoken the word in Perga and went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of of God for the work that they had fulfilled. What encouragement to receive them back at the mother church and hear these stories of their persistence, of their perseverance against this opposition. Still a couple more principles I want you to see from this passage. The model of church growth or establishment or evangelism that we see is informative to say the very least. You might call it discipleship evangelism. It's a, it's a full response to the commission of Christ to make disciples. Not only to proclaim the gospel, which we should, to proclaim the way to be freed from our sins and to be right with God is through Christ. That's a proclamation of the gospel, evangelism. Uh, an evangelism announcement of something. But it's the discipleship process that roots people deeper in that initial gospel to live it out. That's the full mission of the church. That's the fullness of what we're supposed to be about. And it's on display even in the short missionary trip that they take. Notice how it plays out. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples. So it was more than just simply they got a response from them, filled out a, a card and wrote back to the headquarters that we got so, so many conversions or so many decisions. That's decisionalism. That's not a biblical model. They returned to Lystra and Tyconium and Antioch, back to the places they were persecuted to do what? To check up on those who had originally said they believed in Christ. It's not that they didn't believe it, but they knew they needed deepening and that with the persecutions that would come, that would shake them and they needed to encourage them and they themselves bearing marks now, Paul coming all bludgeoned from being stoned, he comes and is able to say, to stand firm. And they could see him. 
it's an incredible testimony of how people are deepened in their faith in the gospel. Verse 22, more specifics, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You can hear, hear Barnabas's character here. Barnabas, remember how he encouraged? Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep true to that mission. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. See, that's discipleship. That's deepening their faith in Christ. It's growing their confidence in their God through Christ. And then notice what it says at the end of verse 22, a very important warning. Saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now here it's talking about the future realization of God's presence that's promised for all believers that will be eternal. But before that time, we'll go through tribulations, varying levels. And he's warning them of this. Again, imagine the vivid picture of this broken, beaten Paul telling him this. They saw him healthy on the way there, and on the way back, he's not looking so healthy. But he's telling him it's going to be through tribulations. This faith is real. It's true. It's eternal. But it will cost us something right now. Even in returning to the sending church, what an impact it must have had on the sending church. Um, The discipleship of Antioch the mother church, the strong church, doesn't stop. You see, church isn't supposed to just be a seminary where you just have the apostles teach you for a year and then you send them off, see ya, and let's study some more. They come back and report so that the people could see the dynamic nature of God's ministry in the world. That's what you have happening when they come back. Look at verse uh, 26. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. That's back to the mother, <clears throat> the mother church. Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. Verse 27, here's their missionary report. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. See, discipleship happened at the mother church. Churches were established. The gospel was preached. People were converted. Opposition came. More discipleship came. They stood against the opposition. The church grew. The church stayed strong for centuries. Jesus' commission is clear. Go, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A strong church cares much about the deepening and strengthening of its members and other churches as well and does what it can to help. Finally, I want you to see something else in verse 23 that's especially uh, meaningful to us as a Presbyterian church. You know, presbyter is the word, the Greek word for elder. And we have here an example that we, we take as an important example that helps inform our own church organization, our church government. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, so they went to these places, nurtured them, discipled them, but then they had to leave. What did they do? They appointed elders, and I want you to notice very carefully, plural, elders. Appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Biblically, the focal point of all church leadership really falls upon this office of the elder. The Greek word for elder is presbyter. That's why we're a Presbyterian church. On the back of the bulletin, there's a list of men that are the elders. They collectively um, govern the church. Um, all have to be able to teach, all have to guard doctrine, all have to nurture, shepherd the flock. We identify some to 
give their life vocation to the teaching of the word, but they're not ranked higher. They're just among the session, the elders, the board of elders, a plurality of elders. Um, it's interesting, in the scripture, uh, the word translated elder is used 20 times in the book of Acts and in the epistles, and it's in reference to this group of leaders. And there is a bit of a, an overlap of several terms that are used synonymously. Um, there's elder, there's overseer, there's pastor or shepherd. These are all used interchangeably to do some of the same tasks. That's why we see one office of elder. Some functions are different, but the office itself really embodies all of these New Testament words for leaders. And here's the point. They're godly qualified people, and there's a group of them, not just one or two of them. That's the point. That guards against some of the abuses that can happen if you just have one, per se. In fact, there's a, a man named Benjamin Merkel who wrote a book on this model of, of elders, a plural, plurality of elders. He said, first of all, that it provides a biblical accountability between um, godly fellow elders. Uh, it hold, they hold each other accountable and especially keep one from becoming too uh, high in themselves or too powerful or however you want to term it. It also helps them with each other, just sharing that authority with one another uh, so no one wrongly lords it over. Also, there's a plurality of wisdom that happens with a plurality of, of elders. Uh, when you have a, more godly counselors, the better in discerning God's will. Uh, Presbyterians are sometimes blamed for being slow to come to decisions. That's really without apology. It just takes time to work through that, especially when all the individual elders have to act together to come up with the right way to guide the church as a whole. Um, there's this burden sharing that's so helpful. You don't just have a couple people having the weight of the whole church on themselves. The elders bear that together. It also sets an example for the church. When the church sees the elders who are different people with strong personalities laying down some of their own individual ideas so that the whole can do the right thing, that's exactly the model we need as fellow believers in the church. That we too, if they can exemplify that kind of teamwork, we can do it in the church level even though we're different. This is important. Every little bit of what the apostles do is important for us to see and to recognize and certainly they're appointing elders in every one of these church plants is very informative and helpful for us. So the passage ends with the conclusion of Paul's first of three missionary journeys. They return to their sending church, give a report that brings great joy, no doubt. And the passage also has shed light for us in many ways. A bold proclamation of the gospel will bring conversions and it will bring opposition. We see an example of why it's bad to glorify people. And thankfully, Paul and Barnabas repel this. We could do well to learn this both as leaders and followers in today, today's Christianity. We see a timeless need for persistence in the face of opposition that will come. We see that evangelism isn't an end in itself just to proclaim the message. It's to see people converted and then deepen in their faith so that the church can become strong in its witness and then in its multiplication. Finally, we saw the establishment of these early churches identified by a plurality of leaders who stayed there to continue the work of the apostles onto the next generations. This is just the first of three missionary journeys, and we've already learned quite a bit. Timeless principles, timeless applications for us all to think and pray about. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we have just studied yet another amazing account of your work in the first century uh, to establish your church. We feel a definite connection with what we have read. Uh, we recognize our deficiencies, and we need your help. 
please give us strength. Give us humility to recognize the areas where we fall short. Please pour more of your grace upon us that we would follow your word humbly and carefully for your name's sake. We recognize the need to be freshened in our application of these principles. Lord, give us boldness in gospel proclamation no matter what the cost, courage to stand in the face of oppositions. We pray for those of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and even killed the world over because they stay fast to their Savior Christ. Lord, locally, I pray for our leadership. Please encourage our elders in their role as shepherds. Bless them and encourage them. Bless our congregation as they follow their lead. Bless them in their efforts to faithfully guide this flock. And Lord, give, give each member of this church a renewed appreciation for you and your care and your love for your church. As well as a sense of personal and corporate responsibility to see your kingdom grow. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.